Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, May 10th, the start of a big week in politics, as a number three House Republican, Liz Cheney, appears likely to be removed over her insistence that Donald Trump bears great responsibility for the January 6th Capitol insurrection, and that despite the former president's cries, the election wasn't stolen. Republican state legislators from around the country have taken Trump's complaints and are seeking to pass new election laws in the name of vote integrity. Tom Lopatch, the CEO of the nonpartisan nonprofit Voter Participation Center, joins us today to discuss what's happening in the states and his organization's efforts to expand the electorate. Before that, we'll sum up what we learned from last month's reapportionment of congressional districts. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jero's Gem. Jero's Gem for this episode of Down Ballot Counts is 761,169. That is the average number of people per congressional district according to the first 2020 census results released late last month. That's an increase from 710,767 in 2010. The figure was 210,328 in 1910, which was the decade when the size of the House membership was fixed at 435. Every 10 years and often in between, there's renewed debate as to whether the House needs to have a bigger membership to accommodate these population increases. It would take a mere tweak of a federal law, but for logistical and political reasons, there's no real appetite in Congress to increase its membership. Now, while there is about 761,000 people per district, the average district populations between states will vary quite a bit. Delaware will continue to have one district with a population of about 991,000, and it will be the most populous state with one at-large district. But Montana, with a total population of 1.09 million, was awarded a second congressional district in reapportionment, so it will have twice the representation of Delaware, even though Montana has only about 95,000 more people than Delaware. Such are the vicissitudes of the formula that distributes the 435 House seats among the states. So, 761,169, the average population of a congressional district, that is your Jero's gem. All right, up next, we're going between the lines. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. The U.S. Census Bureau last month announced six states would gain at least one congressional district and seven would lose one a -a once-a-decade adjustment to population changes that precedes the drawing of the lines. Greg, what's your back-of-the-napkin calculation on the political ramifications of the change? Well, it's pretty minimal, actually. We didn't get a lot of changes in this reapportionment. So uh, just to review, six states gained a total of seven seats, Texas with two, and Florida, Montana, Colorado, North Carolina, and Oregon at one apiece. And then seven states lost seats, California, Illinois, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, a one seat apiece. And reapportionment is necessarily a zero-sum game because, as we noted at the, at the outset in Jero's Gem, the, the House is fixed at 435 seats, so any uh, states that gain do so at the expense of other states that aren't growing as quickly in population. As far as the political ramifications, you know, if you re-ran the 2020 presidential election using these new numbers, uh, Joe Biden would have won with three fewer electoral votes. So, um, you know, it, generally, it you know, the, the reapportionment favored uh, – 
states that tend to be more Republican leaning than Democratic leaning, but it didn't really, uh, not, not too many big changes from that reapportionment. Well, let's talk about Texas real quick. It's a red state. So gaining two additional congressional districts uh, would seem to help a Republican running for president, um, help Republicans in the House. Um, but it, it could be argued that it's gaining seats because there are more Democrats now in the state. It's a very suburban state, uh, has a high Hispanic population. If Democrats start putting Texas in play, as they thought they could in 2020, that's, maybe this helps Democrats. Yeah, Texas is going to be a very interesting state to watch. It's one of the states where uh, Republicans are in control of redistricting because um, they have the state house the state senate and the governorship and in most states uh if you control all three of those you have the power to you know redraw lines as uh, as your party sees fit uh, but uh texas is um not the easiest state to predict with its political uh trends i mean if you i remember a decade ago um you know 2010 2011 um you know the most you know competitive district in texas or i think the only one actually was texas's 23rd district a massive district that runs along that hugs the rio grande river it really was the only competitive district in texas at the start of last decade but what happened during the decade you had the emergence of donald trump and he um he really kind of changed some, you know, voting trends or affected some voting trends uh, in Texas during the decade. You had these districts that were seemingly safe suburban districts become very competitive and in some cases Democratic leaning. And then, um, you know, Trump showed some strength among some uh, majority Latino areas in South Texas uh, in the 2020 election. And so the Republicans are going to have to try and figure out, um, you know, what, you know, how many seats can we draw to our advantage here while being mindful of demographic trends for the next decade, uh, because um, you're not drawing seats just for the 2022 election, you're drawing them for the next decade through 2030. And, you know, the political trends and demographic trends are not uh, as easy to uh, to forecast as, as, as one might assume. That's right. After the 2010 census, it looked like Republicans might hold the House majority for the next decade. Um, and of course, Democrats won it in 2018. And now where states lose a district, it often sets up member versus member races. Are there any states in particular you're going to be watching for any hot ones? Yeah, you really have to watch those um, those st- uh, states that are losing a district. But even in states that are standing pat, um, you can still have incumbent versus incumbent matchups. But one state I'm watching is New York, which is going to lose one seat. You know, at least Stefanik has been in the news a lot because she's seeking to unseat Liz Cheney. But I don't think she'll be targeted by redistricting necessarily because she represents a, a very pro-Trump North Country district kind of tucked in the northeastern part of the state. But what could happen is that if Democrats control the redistricting there, and they would, they essentially do because they have a supermajority in the legislature that could override anything the commission uh, will will draw. Um, the Republicans could try and pair Stefanik in a district with, say, Claudia Tenney, who has just returned to Congress. Uh, she hasn't lived too far away from that area. And so um, what you'll see in some of these states, states that are losing a district, or even states that are staying at the same number of seats, depending on who controls the redistricting, you could see Two members of Congress basically forced to run against each other in the primary. I look back at the 2012 uh, redistricting year, and you had 13 House incumbents defeated for re-election in the primary, and eight of them lost to other incumbents. So we're going to see a number of incumbent versus incumbent matchups in the primaries. Yeah, we saw that uh, certainly in 2012 in Michigan, where now Senator Gary Peters had to defeat Uh, one of his colleagues in the Detroit area. That same area could lose a seat again. It looks like it will, um, which our our colleague uh, Emily Wilkins uh, just wrote about last week. 
And uh, in, in 2012, I was on the ground in the San Fernando Valley of California for what was, I think, the greatest member versus member race ever, Howard Berman and Brad Sherman. And I was there at the debate where things got a little <clears throat> uh, physical. Uh, so anyway, lots to watch. All right, we're going to leave it there for now, but we'll definitely be watching this closely as states begin to draw district lines uh, in the next few months. Up next, we'll talk about state voting laws. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Tom Lopatch, CEO of the Voter Participation Center, a nonpartisan nonprofit that seeks to register to vote historically disenfranchised populations. Tom is a former chief of staff and top campaign advisor to both a Democratic governor and senator from Montana, and he's now focused on getting as many people as possible to the polls. Tom, welcome to the pod. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Appreciate it. Well, so I want to start with 2020. Um, Democrats won the White House and picked up seats in the Senate. And Republicans picked up seats in the House. Of course, Donald Trump is still complaining about the vote six months later. Uh, they're auditing ballots in Arizona. Um, and the House GOP is, is you know, getting ready to throw out one of their leaders over the vote in 2020. How did your organization view the historic turnout and the dramatic increase in vote by mail and, and Dropbox usage? The incredible turnout in the 2020 election was certainly historic and a sign of what our democracy can be when people are given the opportunity to vote and when they receive good education through programs like ours or good media coverage about methods of voting. And I don't think it can be categorized as a total success for one party or the other. We saw both parties win at different levels of the ballot, which indicates voters took a lot of time to think about how they were going to vote. So from our perspective, it was a success. And so that turnout has led to an onslaught of state legislative bills from around the country that would, uh, to say this as generically as possible, alter voting logistics. Um, your organization is advocating against many of these bills. What are some of the specific proposed regulations that are particularly concerning for your organization? These bills seek to disenfranchise voters. In particular, they are working to disenfranchise people of color and young people from the ballot. If you look in Montana, the ID requirements and the end of same-day registration are particularly onerous for young people or college students. If you look at Georgia and Florida and Texas, the limitations on drop boxes and the limitations on vote by mail are intended to target communities of color. Uh, we have great concerns with the Georgia bill, which would levy fines on third-party organizations who send vote-by-mail applications to people who may have recently signed up to vote-by-mail. In Florida, uh, they are limiting the ways in which ballots can be returned in a state where you have a significant number of retired people who may or may not have family living close, who may or may not have easy access to transportation. After the 2020 election where we saw the highest turnout in, in over a century, erecting additional barriers to keep people from voting just doesn't make sense. The other piece of it is these barriers in this legislation across the country are solving a problem that doesn't exist. There were over 60 lawsuits and untold numbers of recounts that affirmed electoral outcomes in the 2020 elections. And 
proved there was little to voter fraud. So now we have all of these legislative efforts to disenfranchise voters, which is truly solving a problem that doesn't exist. Uh, So what's wrong with requiring a driver's license or a photo ID as a prerequisite to voting? The driver's license and photo identification requirement can be onerous for some people who don't have easy access to computers or the time off to go to your Department of Motor Vehicles and take a driver's test or get a uh, state ID. Many of these places are open during hours that don't work for people who may be working nights or weekends. Um, And the ID requirements are written and passed from a perspective of people who don't necessarily have the hardest lives. When you think about folks who are working two and three jobs just to make ends meet, trying to squeeze in time to go get a state-approved ID uh, can be a lot harder than for folks who are working one job, have two cars in their garage, and somebody who takes care of the kids. And what are the prospects for a lot of these voting bills in the courts? I'm not a lawyer, so I can't speak to um, the outcomes of these. I do think many of these efforts um, go too far. And I think through lawsuits like the one that we have filed in Georgia and that other organizations and other attorneys are filing, uh, they will have their day in court and we will hopefully see um, some sense of normalcy returned to access to voting. Uh, your organization supports H.R. Uh, 1, the Democrats' uh, omnibus elections, voting ethics, and redistricting bill, and your former Senate chief of staff. And what are your thoughts about how H.R. 1 can get through the Senate? Uh, could it or should it be broken up into pieces? You know, I don't, I am not steeped in what is happening inside the Senate at this moment. I do think progress, federal progress to protect access to voting to protect voters is necessary. We have seen in 47 states over 300 bills to limit access to voting. That is not true to the democracy that we are. And so it's time for the federal government to step in and set a baseline for what is acceptable for access to the polls, for voter registration, so that there is equality and equity across the country. Um, And you don't have some states where elections will be overseen by legislatures that have a vested interest in the outcome and a vested interest in who gets to vote. You know, as a democracy, we really should be about a battle of ideas, a contest of ideas, and not a contest of who gets to turn out and vote. Some of what's in H.R. 1 or Senate Bill 1, as well as the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, are intended to create that uh, baseline so that it is equal access to voting. And then we can return to a debate over policy or ideas. So, Tom, I want to ask you, um, what what led you to to leave, you know, politics and uh, you worked on a presidential campaign uh, last year um, to go into, you know, to a nonpartisan organization. What, what pushed you there? For me personally, it's about service. Uh, each of us has the opportunity to do work in life. Um, and I would prefer that my life's work 
be about helping other people. So it was a natu natural extension of work in government to move to an organization that helps register and turn out voters, particularly voters who have had challenges accessing the vote historically. And so how does the Voter Participation Center work? What, what are some of the, the top things the organization does to, to get people to vote? We run incredibly high volume direct mail and digital outreach to the new American majority. That's people of color, unmarried women, and young people. Historically, we know that these three groups turn out to vote at rates that are lower than their actual percent in society. And so through direct mail programs, bringing voter registration literally to a person's mailbox. In many states, we can pre-fill it. The recipient simply needs to sign it and send it back. We also helped this last cycle with vote by mail. Uh, in spring of 2020, we began to diagnose what COVID meant for access to voting. And you'll remember at that point, we were talking about a second wave in the fall during election season, not a sustained wave. So we were able to help over 4.6 million people sign up to vote by mail in key states last year. That was pretty meaningful work. The other thing that we do is as we move closer to the election, we'll send uh, digital or mail-based get out the vote reminders. When you look at the turnout last cycle, uh, I do think that our work to remind voters to get out and vote and what their options were, be it early vote in person, voting by mail, or voting on election day, I think it made a meaningful difference in those key states. All right, Tom, we brought you on to discuss voting laws. But for my last question, while we have you, as a former Senate strategist, I was wondering if you had an early read on the 2022 landscape. It's going to obviously be competitive. Um, you've got a number of states that are often referred to as battleground states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, where there are races. I think that the candidates who connect best with voters on economic and pocketbook issues are going to be the candidates who succeed at the end of the day. This is a challenging time for Americans, um, from the economy to health, to making sure that your families have a roof over their head and food on the table. And I think nationally, we will see those candidates that are focused like a laser on people's well-being, on their jobs, on their pocketbooks, are going to be the candidates that do, do the best. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Tom, it was great talking to you again. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you, and thank you for the work you guys do. This is Down Ballot Counts. Before we close the show, we've got a parting trivia shot I'll attempt to answer on the spot. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each episode, I try and stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. Since we've talked today about the U.S. population and the reapportionment, I think I will draw from that well for this episode's trivia question. And I want to know in which decade did the U.S. report its slowest 10-year rate of population growth? And because I'm such a nice guy, I'm going to give you four choices. Was it the 1930s, the 1960s, the 1990s, 
or the 2010s, the decade we just uh, recently completed? In which decade did the U.S. report its slowest 10-year rate of population growth? Let's see if Kyle knows the answer. Kyle, what say you? I'm going to go 1930s. That is correct. In that decade, the population grew just 7.3% during the decade as the Depression gripped the country. The second lowest growth rate was in the 2010s, a growth rate of just 7.4%, according to the just-released 2020 census results. And this has implications for policy, including for the Social Security system. So, your correct answer, the 1930s. Good job, Kyle, and good job to anyone listening who got that correct. I'll take the win. That's it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020 before endorsing Joe Biden. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you soon. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time, we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle. It's one of the largest battles of World War I. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.